Well, we are uh, back in Hebrews is where we're going to be here, believe it or not. So um, chapter 10, and we're going to cover verses 19 through 25 tonight. And uh, the last time we talked here in Hebrews, we kind of had looked about having been forgiven and having a clean conscience. He's going to come and revisit that in some of these verses as well. But uh, just to remind you, the devil is very good at always trying to have us remember what the Lord has forgotten when it comes to our sins and our failures, that we, different personalities, but I, I have the personality that is very good about beating myself up when I fail. And it's always good to remember that we have been marked by God. We are His. We belong to Him. He has made us saints. And while, yes, the law is important for us and we love that, we are not defined by the law of God. We are defined by the grace of God, which is awesome. And uh, it's such a paradox for many people when they listen to me talk about that I'm a saint, but yet then I love the law. They, they, they can't quite understand how these two go together because of the definitions of the law and the gospel today. And um, it's when we have a proper understanding of that law, when the condemnation does not stand in that law, when the law is a means of sanctification and blessing, that you begin to see how those two things fit together. And, uh, but anyway, so just uh, as we talk about this clear conscience aspect, that's what we, we, we can stand boldly in the most holy place because of what Christ has done. Because we have a clear conscience, even when we love the law of God, when I break it all the time. So, I don't want to break it, but that's what Paul said. The good that I want to do, I do not do, and that which I hate, I keep on doing. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what he's talking about. So, anyway, um, <clears throat> we are going to pick up here in verse 19. And it says this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Starting out pretty uh, repetitive in a sense. We have talked about this before and I'm finding myself feeling like I'm repeating myself a lot because Hebrews is doing that. It is drilling it in your head how Jesus, Yeshua, is a better priest, how we are the temple, how he is a better sacrifice, all of these things. <clears throat> and so I just want to kind of remind you again that nobody could enter the holy place, the most holy place, except for the high priest and then only on the Day of Atonement that we just celebrated here, you know, the last week or so. And this is the room where God's presence was. This is the room where atonement was made. And before there was not access you could not go in. In the Old Testament, if you'd have gone in there because, you know, you had murdered somebody and you felt terrible and you just wanted forgiveness and you were so sorry, so repentant, truly, genuinely, and you ran into the most holy place to grab onto the Ark of the Covenant and beg for forgiveness, you'd be dead. 
you could not go in. And yet when Christ died, he made that possible to where we can go in there. And so this is no small deal, which is why Hebrews is bringing it up more than once. And so I just really want this to set home how important this is, how powerful this is, what the results are of you being able to go into the most holy place. This is what it means to be forgiven, to be a Christian, and what it means to know Yeshua as your Savior. Nothing else gets you into that place. Keeping the Sabbath, you know, following every commandment that you can possibly get will not get you into the most holy place. Only the blood of Jesus does. And uh, that is, there's nothing more important for you to, to grasp than that. So I want to take you to the book of Esther here. And uh, maybe some of you have heard me speak on Esther, kind of doing Daniel Joseph's message on that as well. But bottom line is, uh, I'll give you a little sneak peek of it. Esther is, after doing his study on Esther, I've never looked at that book the same. It is incredible. Uh, it is a prophetic book in a very real way. And so I'm going to give you a sneak peek here as we kind of talk about entering into the most holy place and give you kind of almost a real-life example of that, what it looked like, and for us spiritually how that looks. In Esther 4.11 it says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king, you might say a symbol or a picture of the most holy place, when you're reading the book of Esther, if you can kind of keep these uh, few things in mind, it's going to revolutionize how you read that book. King Ahasuerus is a picture or symbol of God. We also see that Esther is going to be a picture or symbol of the people of God. Mordecai is going to be a picture or symbol of Yeshua. And you're going to see that Haman is a picture or symbol of the devil. And I'm telling you, you cannot go through two verses of that book throughout the entire thing without a prophetic connection. It is that incredible. So what's going on here is we see the king has this... Yeah, so Ahasuerus is, is God. And Ahasuerus in like our Bibles would be Xerxes. Xerxes in the NIV, but yeah. that's been historical criticism that's put that there. Right, the I Hebrew... Know, is Ahasuerus. Yeah. yeah. Then uh, Haman is the devil. Mordecai is Jesus. Esther is God's people. And so what has happened here, the background in the first three chapters of Esther, is we see that Haman has gone to uh, the king and said that there's these people who don't really follow you, basically lied, accused the people of something that's not. That's what the devil does. He's accuser. He, he accuses us day and night, right? But Jesus just looks at it and says, you know what? That's my servant, Andrew. He does that sometimes. Okay? Matter of fact, he does it a lot. <laughs> but the point being is, that's my child. It doesn't matter. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, Haman 
has basically bought out the people. And he has set a certain day where he is going to destroy them. Well, Mordecai hears of this and basically calls Esther and says, here, this is what's happening. And Mordecai tells Esther what to do. So you picture that. Esther listens to Jesus, listens to the commands of, uh, of Jesus, and that's the only way that Esther is going to survive. The people of God will survive by following Mordecai's command. Okay, That's what I mean by just kind of looking at it in this kind of picture. And what ends up happening is she calls for a fast and for three days, which again, no accident that at the end of three days of this fast is when they're going to be delivered. After three days, you see a resurrection and our deliverance, all of this kind of thing is there too. But Mordecai says you need to go to the king. And she says, well, you can't go into the king's presence unless you are called. That's pretty scriptural, isn't it? No one comes to Yeshua unless the Father draws him, and vice versa. No one gets to the Father unless you go through Yeshua. And he, she says that the only way that you can even go is when you're called if, she, if he extends the gold scepter. Uh, remember even talking about the scepter, the, the prophecy that Yeshua would come when the scepter departed from Judah, the power. Judah has the scepter, the power, a gold you know, scepter as well. Uh, I won't get into the gold right now, but anyway. So um, the, the people have been sentenced to death, and Mordecai gives Esther a copy of the law that was against them. All right. Well, in essence, that's what Yeshua has done too, is given us a copy of the law that's against us, and there's only one way to be saved, and that's going to be through Mordecai. But there is a law that is written that is against us, that would condemn us to death. If we died today, and our getting into heaven is based on the law that is written, will you go to heaven or hell apart from Christ? Signed by the king. Signed by the king and you're dead, okay? You will die if it's not for Yeshua, by the law. So, anyway, Esther then, you know, when she's told what to do, replies with these words, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. Now again, you go into the most holy place without being called like a priest was called to go in once a year. You're dead. Same kind of thing is being pictured here. Did they have any record of anybody actually dying going into the most holy place? From what I have heard from like Jewish scholars is there's absolutely no record of anybody ever dying, no, nobody ever doing it. Outside of, in that rare circumstance when the Philistines had taken the ark and then they had opened the ark when it, the cattle brought it back and the people died because they were in the presence. Well, touched it. Yeah. Uzziah touched it. Yeah. Right. I just yeah. meant like going into the most holy but place. But not going into the most holy place, no. This is really interesting because isn't Esther like the only book that doesn't actually name God? Yeah. Yeah, it does not 
have God's name mentioned. However, he is in certain other ways, but um, yeah. Yeah. It, but God is everywhere in it, and it is... It is truly a remarkable book. I, I know that mine are posted, but it might be just on Patreon, I think. Or, did somebody listen to it? I thought somebody yeah, here listened. Yeah, on podcast is what it is. Okay, so Creation Instruction Association podcast, you can listen to. Yep, yep. So if you want to know more about that, go to our podcast and listen. It, it's free, so... Um, so anyway, uh, this inner court is like a picture of that. So it continues in verse 12. So they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so, if you remain silent, God's going to bring deliverance because God is going to be faithful to his promises. Mordecai is saying, God made a promise to the Jew. He's going to keep it regardless of what you do. God is faithful. And Esther basically here is saying at first, well, I'm not going in. I mean, I'll die. And Mordecai is saying, it's up to you. But you either can be saved by putting your, your life in, in his hands, or you can die by doing nothing. It's not going to come through osmosis. Your salvation does not come through osmosis either. Everybody has to make a choice. A choice to either go after, seek the kingdom of God, or not, ultimately. Continues in verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply, to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are in, uh, present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went this way, his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. So we are seeing that... She says it's against the law to go into his presence. It's against the law to go into his presence. Well, that's what it is for us. For us to enter God's presence without Yeshua, you're dead. Without being called, all of that, we've talked about it. So anyway, um, Mordecai, or Yeshua in, in this symbol, tells her to go in. He's the one that's commanding it. And this is what we're reading here in Hebrews, isn't it? that we are to enter the most holy place. God is telling you, do you want to be saved? Do you want to have a closer relationship with me? Do you want to have that golden scepter? Then you need to go in to the most holy place. I believe that a lot of Christians today are very content hanging out in the outer court. I think they're saved. When I talk about the tabernacle, we have these three areas. You've got the outer court, well, the outer court is a picture of heaven. You're in heaven. There's a gate, and you can't, there's only one gate to get in there. That gate is a picture of Jesus. You get in through that. Inside, you've got the altar, the sacrifice. That's Jesus as well, but that's in the outer court. But beyond that sacrifice, you have 
the table of showbread, which is a picture of communion in the holy place. You have the word of God pictured by the menorah. And you've got the altar of incense, a picture of prayer. Three things that are intimate and, and relational. And you don't have access to those unless you start going in. And then you have the very presence of God in the most holy place. And I think too many Christians are content saying, well, I go to church on Sunday and I pray at night and now I'm going to go live my life. I am going to fill my time with Facebook and sports and entertainment and work. Uh, you know, things that are not sinful in themselves. But we fill our life with that without obeying the command to go in to the most holy place, to the inner court. And I think that that's part of the challenge of what Hebrews is telling us to do here. Don't be satisfied with just saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay? You're never going to experience the joy of your salvation hanging out in the outer court. And honestly, a lot of people may not even get saved because they think they're in the outer court, but they really aren't even there. But anyway... Esther fasts. She humbles herself. That's one of the keys before you go into the presence is what? Humility. Repentance. And that's what they're doing. They're fasting. They're praying. And um, getting their heart right before they go in. And then being able to realize I have no strength of my own. If I perish, I perish. But I'm going to put my life in God's hands. There is nothing I can do but follow the commands. Chapter 5, verse 1 goes on in Esther, and it says, Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on her royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So, again, the third day, and she puts on her royal robes. She adorns herself. What is I think it's Corinthians that says that for us to to adorn ourselves and to get ready. Revelation talks about it in a couple of different places. They made our robes white in the blood of the Lamb. That the righteous, or, or the white robes stand for the righteous acts of the saints. So putting on the royal robes is even a picture of before you're entering in is our works, our attitude of, in our heart. Alright? And again, the third day, it, it, it basically paved the way to allow her to go into the inner court or into that holy of holies. Well, that's what the resurrection has done. We can't go into the inner court until on the third day when Jesus rose from the dead, what happens? That curtain tore that separated the holy place from the most holy place in the temple. And it was on that third day that access was made for us to be able to go into the most holy place. Anyway, it goes on in verse 2, So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the, the scepter. So ultimately, because Esther humbled herself and listened to Mordecai, she was able to enter into the, the most holy place, the inner court. And when she did, she obeyed that command. She was received by the king. You might say Mordecai was a mediator between them, which is what 
Yeshua is. He is that mediator. So she touches the golden scepter. And in essence, what do we see happening? That, uh, that scepter, who gets the scepter? Yeshua has the scepter. Remember it says the, the scepter will not depart from Judah until it is uh, given or, or whatever taken to the one to whom it belongs. Well, who does it belong to? It belongs to Yeshua Jesus. And so that's why he can now sit at the right hand of God because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah and it's to him that belongs the power, the gold scepter. And so how are we welcomed into the inner court? By touching the golden scepter, by touching Yeshua. Okay, verse 3. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. I love that. Isn't that what Yeshua said too? He says, Whatever you ask in my name, it will be given to you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things okay, will be given to you, basically. So what a beautiful picture of the boldness that when the church has to go into the holy place under the command and under the scepter of Yeshua, the authority that is then given to us. And that's what's happening here with Esther. And that's what it means to go into the most holy place. When Hebrews is telling us that, that's what I meant when I say I want you to understand the power of what this statement means. The results of what that statement is. Going into the most holy place. And I'm telling you, what we've been doing this last week, celebrating the Feast of Sukkot, I think, in essence, that is part of going in to the most holy place. Seeking in the Word to know God more. Today, uh, part of our Sabbath, we listen to... Um, Priscilla Shire, and uh, I know one of the things that she was talking about, one of the phrases, I like how she worded it, and I'll probably slaughter it, but it was nothing new, but just the way she worded it, it was something that um, Blackaby said. She went and asked him, how do you hear from God, or how do you know when God is speaking to you? And his answer to her was this, the more you know him, the more you recognize his voice. And I'm telling you, if you guys are hanging out in the outer court, you're not going to hear his voice. You might hear voices. <laughs> uh, it, it could be deceiving voices. And, and I'm telling you that the church is filled with that, with very good people, God-honoring people who hear things that aren't from God that the devil uses to lead them astray or to lead others astray. Yeah. Can I add to that a little bit? That yeah. I knew that sheep would go into a fold and then that in, at nighttime and the shepherd would become a gatekeeper or whatever, but I did not know that you'd have up to 10 shepherds putting in their flocks of 100 and you'd have up to 1,000 sheep in one fold. And then in the morning, the 10 shepherds would come well, the nine shepherds, because one would be the gatekeeper. And the nine shepherds would come, and they would call their sheep, and all of their 100 sheep would know exactly that shepherd's voice, and they would they'd 
file out one by one for each single shepherd. And she's just talking about how they, they were intimate with their, their sheep in the sense that they spent a lot of time. They, they all knew their shepherd's voice and they all followed wherever their shepherd went because they trusted him. And, and she said today, um, shepherds don't have, you know, they, they use helicopters. And when you walk into a flock of sheep, the sheep scatter because they don't know a shepherd anymore. They don't have any kind of relationship with a person. They have um, helicopters to do everything. And she's like, so basically modern, modern conveniences have ruined that. Um, technology, technology she said technology has ruined that relationship with the sheep there's no relationship with their shepherd anymore at all and she's relating that to kids watching their phones during church and stuff you know there's, and I'm gonna just so that watching church online. <laughs> yeah. yeah and th without a relationship with Jesus you don't hear his voice without a relationship with the shepherd those sheep don't know when that Shepherd spent 24 hours, seven days a week with that flock. They all know him and they take them as their own and they recognize his voice. They recognize what he looks like, all of it. But if we do it like we do today and we're not spending that time with it, you're just a hireling and you come in and the sheep don't trust you. They don't recognize. They don't do any of that. And that's our relationship with Jesus. If you want to... You know, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. They know me and they know my voice. That's what it means to know the word of God. That's why he left us his word, because it is how we know him. It's how we determine what is right, what is truth, and what is not truth. Because there's a lot of things out there that sound godly and nice, but it's not truth. It goes against the word of God because the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. And so when somebody says something that goes against the word of God, we recognize that that's not the, the voice of God. That's not my master. That's not my shepherd. And that's why it's so important for us to, to be in the word of God. And I think that the church is filled with those kind of half-truths where we don't have the whole word of God. And it isn't because the pastors are bad people. It's just because they're a product of culture. They're lacking knowledge in God's word. And in some cases, some people who really know God's word really well, but we, I've been there myself, and maybe I'm still there in some areas, but I, I have blinders. You know, when I grew up, when I was uh, in a certain denomination growing up, that's all I could see. And I was taught that this denomination believes that, and this denomination believes this over here, but we've got the truth here. And I'll just give you an example for uh, a doctrine that we would basically call decision theology. Uh, when I was growing up, the, the movie, or not movie, but the song, I Have Decided by Amy Grant, was was just theologically terrible. I have decided to follow Jesus. You can't decide to follow Jesus. Okay, nobody comes to the Father or to the Son unless the Father draws him, right? So you can't decide. Well, there's truth to that. Absolutely there's truth to that. 
But yet I would go to many of these other denominations who didn't have that doctrine, and I would say, do you think that you could come to Jesus without God drawing? Oh, absolutely not. But yet they would say, but I decided to follow Jesus when I was, you know, 12 years old or whatever. Well, see, I didn't have a problem with that. It was, it was semantics to some extent, right? They have the proper understanding, but the way they voiced it and understood it in their mind was completely different. And I found that, I mean, I was very judgmental. I'm waiting for my wife to laugh, but... Um, uh, cause I thought the was, was going to oh. like make you laugh, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I have found that I have, uh, softened a lot throughout the years, realizing that, um, truth is important, but sometimes doctrinal blinders can keep us from actually seeing truth, even when there's truth in that doctrine. You know, I don't want to say doctrine's not important because it is. But anyway, the point is, is we need to know God's voice. And we know his voice by the word. And that's the key. And if we don't use the word for that key to understand what truth is, you will be led astray. Guaranteed. So... Um, but I love this because, again, this is the reward we get when we go into the inner court. Ask whatever you want. This is, this is where the deep intimacy with Christ is found, in the boldness to enter the most holy place. So it goes on here in Hebrews 10, in the second part of this verse, by a new and living way. Are we done with Esther? <clears throat> uh, yeah, we're, we'll be done with Esther and we're going back to Hebrews 19. And so we have boldness to enter the most holy place. How? By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Like I said, remember it was on the third, third day that his body, when he rose, that's what you know, tore the temple curtain Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. First of all, a true heart. A true heart, one that is chasing after him. Not going to be perfect. I'm sure my doctrines aren't even all, you know, in line. I can't wait, as we talked about here at the Feast of Tabernacles, for God to come back and correct all my mistakes. But I'm going to use God's word the best I can to understand it and and. I'm going to have a true heart that is set to follow him and be willing to look like a fool, be willing to not blend in, be willing to uh, maybe lose money and jobs and reputation. That's a true heart after God. And in full assurance of faith. Meaning, I don't doubt what God has done for me. Sending his son and taking away my sins. I don't doubt that I am saved because I'm not good enough. I am fully aware of my salvation because of what Christ has done despite me. It goes on, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there's that conscience again. Okay, that 
very important. You know, Romans 6 talks about that too, that our, our conscience will bear witness against us on the day of judgment if for unbelievers ultimately. See, my conscience is clean. Imagine being a non-believer going to hell, dying and standing before the Lord, and now you know you've been wrong. And not only do you know that you've been wrong, you know every sin that you've ever done, as if it's on a big screen for the world to see. I mean, I don't even think I can imagine how conscious, conscience-stricken I would be, how awful that in itself would be, apart from all the flames of hell that I'm about to experience. That, but we, when we stand before God, are not going to stand ashamed. We stand assured. We stand with a pure, clean conscience, because all of our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. All of those stupid things I've done in my life will never even come to mind. It's like, oh, how can you not want to obey God and give him thanks for that? Because I don't know if you guys are, I, I really doubt you're as big of an idiot as I am. And so, Challenge accepted. <laughs> yeah. you know, I always tell people, the man who has been forgiven much loves much. Some of the best Christians I know are not those that grew up in the church, but they are the ones who have had a pretty dark past because they know what they've been delivered from. And I think for me, understanding that I'm a saint in Christ, that that helped me because of this reason right here. Knowing that I'm a saint means this. God has taken care of all of it. Not, oh, well, thanks for, for giving me just enough to squeeze by God. I appreciate that. No, I realize I've been forgiven much. I've been forgiven everything so that I now stand before him with a pure conscience in full assurance of faith as a new creation in Christ, a saint delivered by Jesus Christ. When I grew up, I was always told that, well, you're a saint and a sinner. So, well, we say that I, I poor miserable sinner. We yeah, we would say every Sunday, I, a poor miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities by which I have ever offended thee. And justly deserve thy temporal punishment. Yeah. Now, while there is truth in that, and I think it is good for us to recognize our sins today, don't get me wrong, but I think there's also the aspect of that where there are people who look at themselves and as I'm no good I can never be good enough for God I'm no good and so why would you be so grateful to God if that's how you feel well thanks God I appreciate you dying for me but I'm still a poor miserable sinner no I am not I am a I'm a, a sheep 
that sometimes acts like a goat. And because of that, because I am a sheep every day, I have something to give glory to God for. Otherwise, there were a lot of days that I was pretty bummed and beating myself up because I'm a poor, miserable sinner and felt awful about myself. Well, there's no glory to God going in that, is there? This is what Hebrews is talking about here. Your identity has been sealed in Christ. So, also, there's imagery here of Yom Kippur, you know, the Day of Atonement, just like we did, because having our hearts sprinkled, it was on this day that they would go in and sprinkle that blood. Okay, and so there's that imagery that he's taking you back, that atonement has been made so that that's why you have a clear conscience. That's why your bodies have been washed with pure water, that picture of baptism. 1 Peter 3.21 says there's an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Now, in the church I grew up in, we use this all the time, and we only got to go that far most of the time. It would say, and now this baptism now saves you. But it goes on and says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the baptism itself never saved me. What saved me is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what baptism did for me? It killed me. Romans, I think it's chapter 6, says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into Christ Jesus. But it goes on and says, But we have been raised with him through faith in Christ Jesus. So, baptism killed me. The resurrection rose me, raised me. How did it save you? It says, by basically not the removal of the flesh, not removal of dirt, but a good conscience towards God. How? You died. Is it Colossians It says that I now died, but, how is that worded? I just had it and it left me, but I now live through in Christ Jesus. Um, you died with Christ and you are now seated with Christ Jesus. Thank you. You died with Christ, but we are now seated with Christ Jesus. I die. That's how I become a new creation. And it is in baptism that we have been washed, all of our sins and all of that, and it's a picture of that, of it being going away so that I can have a clear conscience. It didn't just remove some of them in Christ Jesus, but all of them so that you can have not just a kind of clear conscience, but a totally clear conscience. There's no better news. Doesn't matter what your past looks like. If your past continues to haunt you to this day, then you have not complete you have not gone in and grabbed on. That most holy place, you need to enter that and you say this. This is the devil, the accuser, just like in Esther, the accuser who keeps saying, You're not good at do you do you know what you've done? God says, I don't know what you did. I forgave you for that. Yeah. Okay, and so you have to understand. Now, again, I'm only speaking to believers here. 
Okay? People can claim that truth all they want. If they haven't surrendered to Christ, that's not a promise for them. Okay? This is only for those who have surrendered to Jesus and, and have put their hope and faith in Yeshua. But for those who have their past, you've got to let it go. Because if you don't let it go, what you're doing is you're slapping Jesus in the face. And you're saying, what you did, Jesus, was not good enough. I have to be better for what you did to take, to, to take effect. I have to help you do your job. You can't. You can't help him do his job. The devil is going to want to say, nope, Neil, that is, that's a lie. No, you've got to still feel bad about that because you have to pay for it a little bit. Yeah. Okay, well, that's what the devil does. This is why we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, because we take that captive and say, no, devil, and you say it out loud, and you tell the devil, you say, I'm a child of Jesus Christ. I have been forgiven. I have been washed in the blood and baptized in, you know, so that my body has been washed with pure water in Christ Jesus. And I think sometimes it takes a while for your heart and your emotions to catch up to your head. Exactly. Okay, so yeah. You keep repeating the truth to yourself until it gets yeah. yep. in there. Yep, definitely takes a long time sometimes. And the devil will still, even, even after you got it figured out, there will be those days that he'll bring it back up anyway. Yeah. Yep. James 4.8 says, Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, there is something you can do for that sanctification process to get so that your heart and emotions line up with the truth of God's word. Draw near to him. What does that mean? Well, stop making excuses uh, you know, as far as, well, I'll do it tomorrow, or let me say goodbye to my parents first, or uh, I, I just bought five yoke of oxen, let me go try them out first, as the excuses were when Jesus said, come follow me. Maybe it might look something like this. Uh, what is it, what's the name of that social agenda? Is that the movie on Netflix? American Gospel? No, the... Oh, the Social Dilemma. Social Dilemma. All the answers are in the Bible. Yeah, they are, yeah. <laughs> the social dilemma, go watch that. And see Facebook and, and Twitter and all these, what they do, their commodity that they are trying to get is your time. And I think that's because they're controlled by the devil. <laughs> and I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek and somewhat not. And people know and will spend more time looking at Facebook than in their Bible on an average day or a week. Or Twitter or whatever social media it might be. It could be even sports. It, whatever your idol is, it even could be work. Or and your if kids. Your kids, it can be a thousand different idols and, and, and more, millions of idols. And we have to put this into check. We need to draw near to God. That means die to self, give up some of these things, and say enough is enough. And I think, too, what's on our mind? What's the first thing you think about when you wake up? What's the last thing you're thinking about when you go to bed? Sometimes, not always, but sometimes that's an indicator 
of where our heart is. And uh, it takes practice, training in righteousness to get our minds set on the kingdom of heaven and not on the things of this world. And I am just as guilty as anybody sitting here. I can guarantee that at times where my mind, especially when things are busy, you know, or you're building a house or something, that's, you're consumed with it, and I hate it. And I think in some cases that's why a Sabbath is good. To, you're, I'm not touching it this way because I'm going to get my mind back on track. So... Ezekiel 14.1. What the hell's he done? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Too many Sabbaths. <laughs> Ezekiel 14 says, Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of them at all? You know, I find that interesting because it's so easy for us to judge the Israelites like how could you do how, you know you guys are so stupid and it's like we are absolutely no different it's just the uh, difference yeah. yep okay. when we see idols here yeah our phones are just you name it we've got plenty of them and it's just like God's saying here is, should I let myself be inquired of that um, at all by them? If I came and talked to my wife just briefly once a day, and maybe even said the same thing to her every day, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, let these gifts to us be blessed, amen whatever, you know, just some rote thing, no heart, whatever. And that's all I said to her every day. I am not going to have a relationship with her. And frankly, she'd probably say, I don't even want to listen to you anymore. I mean, put it into that perspective. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of thorny ground hearers of the word of God today where the, the cares of this world are choking out what really matters. And... You know, I've said this before, but I, I, I'm still sold that our country is in trouble. Something's happening. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think that we have not been shaken enough yet, and I think that that's going to more. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but that's what's in my heart. That's what's in my spirit. But I even find myself getting tired and sleepy and losing some of that fervency that I think we're supposed to have because of the thorns in the world choking it out. Um, it's just like, is it Jeremiah who said, these people, they worship me with their hearts, but, or with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We can give God lip service and go to church and you know, go do our service projects all we want, but that's not what God wants. He wants your heart. He wants your time. He wants, he wants you to be present there as well. And I think sometimes we can be present at church in body, but not in spirit, really. We're not even there for the right reason. You know, it might be for social reasons. It might be out of obligation. 
It might be out of guilt, but it should be because I want to go spend time with my shepherd to know him more. And one of the things that Priscilla was saying too is expect to get something out of it. That when you go to church, you expect to get something out of it. Not hoping that you will, but expecting. Because I think it was maybe Spurgeon or Tozer who had said something like, if you go not expecting to get something from him, then you'll never receive it. Because you'll always question it. It's kind of like, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe God's speaking to me, maybe he's not, I don't know, maybe that was just my heart thing, I, I don't know. But if you go expecting, knowing that God is going to speak to you through that word somehow, you're going to receive something. You always test it, you know, to the word, but expect to receive something. Um, and again, some things aren't sinful until we make it sinful. Like money, money's not evil. It's what you do with it. Uh, how you think about it that can make it a good thing or a bad thing. You can set it up as an idol or it can be used as a gift and a blessing from God. It's not an idol until you worship it, until it becomes something more than God. You know. Verse 4 continues, it says, Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Everyone of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. How is he going to answer him? Well, basically their deeds are going to be returned to them. And I'm going to show you some things here. Ezekiel 11:21. But as for those whose hearts follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, basically those whose lips worship me but their hearts are not, I will re recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. This is the secular way of saying karma. The, list of people. Yeah. <laughs> so, you want to go into that most holy place? You want to enter, draw near to God? One of the first things you need to do, put away the idols. Put the idols away. Men, take charge of your homes. Might cause an argument or two, but you need to take charge of your home and get rid of the idols for your children, maybe even for your spouse. Maybe it is that Facebook, maybe it's that Netflix, the traveling, the desires, the, the sports, I, I don't know. But examine your, your home. Examine your tent. Because that's one of the first steps in drawing near to God. 1 Samuel 7.3 says, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So again, get rid of the idols before you draw near to God. Imagine if I went and had an affair on my wife. And I came home and I said to her, 
Oh, Tara, I love you so much. Okay, if she knew, she'd say, no, you don't. Right? She knew you'd be dead. Well, yeah. <laughs> that too. <laughs> but, I mean, that's what idols are to God. How can we love Netflix and Facebook and Twitter and all of this so much, and then we go to church and say, oh, I love you, Jesus. It'd be like, no, you don't. You love the world. I mean, that's really ultimately what it is. Just put it into your relationship and how you spend your time, your thoughts, your energy, your heart towards your spouse. And if you're giving God any less than that, that's pretty sad. I would hope we're even doing better. But an idol, that's, that's adultery. That's unfaithfulness. And we can't have these in our hearts. We need to examine our lives if we really want to be bold to enter the most holy place. Again, verse 22, it kind of makes a little bit more sense here. Going back to that. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you truly want to draw near to God, then I think it's time, since we haven't been shaken enough, that maybe this word will convict you enough that we have to examine our tents and start cleaning house. Making some choices. I'm willing to be bored for a while while I adjust to this new life of not turning the TV on every time I you know, have a moment of boredom. Picking up the Bible instead. Whatever. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Again, believe it. Trust it. Claim it out loud, verbally. I believe I've been forgiven. God has made an access so that I can draw near. Listen to Mordecai. He's telling you what to do. The word tells you what to do. Now go do it, just as Esther said. If I die, I die. If I, you know, perish, I perish. Whatever. But go. Just do it. And see if God doesn't extend that scepter out to you. Psalm 27.3, David says this, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words one of the most righteous men that ever walked the earth, one who had a heart after God, basically said that the world would have gotten the better of him had he not clung to his faith. The devil and the world are after your heart. And you need to believe these things. You need to believe these promises. Or else... If David would have you know, lost heart, don't think that you're not going to lose heart. You will. You're going to get sleepy. You're going to get very sleepy and tired and worn out unless you keep grabbing on to these promises. So um, 
Hebrews 10 verse 24, just about ready to wrap up here. It says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. I want to talk about love here as well then. Hebrews is bringing in, okay, draw near to God, enter the holy place, get rid of the idols, but also consider one another in order to stir up love. This is the other thing, in drawing near to God what you're supposed to do. Now, obviously the world defines love differently than we do. The world defines love as tolerance. God calls that hate. To tolerate homosexuality, to tolerate ungodliness in any way, shape, or form in your home, even if it is your own children, is not love. Love is patient, it is kind, but it also um, does not, it does no wrong. It, it, it does not, I'm trying to remember it how it's, no it keeps no record of wrong as well, but I think I'm going to have it coming up here too, but um, that's the one, does not delight in evil, yes. And so when we love someone, we, we want to please them, we want to be like them, right? We, it's almost like you want to imitate them. For example, uh, a kid who has a sports hero or a famous actor. They love these people. They, they get to know, they want to know them. They, they would love to spend time with them. And they act, they speak, they run, they jump, they do whatever that person does. They imitate them. So it says, consider one another in order to stir up love. Aristotle said this, not that he's a godly man, but he got this right. Man differs from other animals in that he is the most imitative of creatures. And he learns his earliest lessons by imitation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul said, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. This has always like not bothered me, but amazed me. Because can you imagine what people in the church would think of me if I said, Hey, I am your father in, in the gospel. Imitate me. Do what I do. See, my Where wife is even laughing. This is the kind of confidence Paul had in his righteousness. It's like, wow. That would sound pretty cocky and boastful for me to say that. I, 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 don't, I, I still can't really, you know, I know me too well. But that's impressive to me. But what I love about this, too, is he says, for though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, is in my memory, that's how it is. You do not have many fathers. What's that mean? There are all kinds of pastors out there who are willing to make you feel good and feel good about yourself. But there aren't many who are willing to give you the truth, to discipline like, you, like a father would discipline you, love you in that way, and, and speak against homosexuality, abortion, divorce, pornography, um, uh, whatever, I, I, a whole list of sins. Not many pastors are willing to be fathers and give you the hard truth and hit the hot topics. 
They just want to do the fluff stuff enough to keep you coming, enough for you to feel good, and enough for you to keep putting in your tithe check. And Paul's saying, that's not me. I'm a father. I'm going to tell you like it is. I'm going to tell you if this guy needs to get out of the church, he needs to get out of the church. I'm going to tell you that if you're doing this, you need to stop, and you need to stop it yesterday. And because of that, he could say, you can imitate me. He knew that he wasn't perfect. But I think he also knew that people understood what truth was because the advice he gave was out of the church, or of the, of the Bible, I mean. I had a friend in Oregon, and <clears throat> still just a dear friend, family, that really has shaped who I am today. And one of the things I always admired about him is if I ever went to him and needed advice or asked him about something, I could guarantee you this, I wasn't going to get an opinion. I was only going to get what Scripture said. It would always be a scriptural answer. That's a father right there. So, bottom line, guys, is you can either imitate Christ, the Word of God, and maybe even godly fathers, because I look at some godly people who I know they're sinners, but I look up to them and, and try to do what they do. They have been uh, a standard for me in some ways. And I like that. I like to have those kind of people in my life that challenge me. You can either have that or you can have on the flip side the culture that you imitate. The athletes, the, the fashion, the latest fashion, the latest whatever of this world that we can imitate. If we look too much like this world, more than likely we're imitating the world more than we are God. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, Love suffers long and it is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. does not seek its own. is not provoked. Thinks no evil. And just like you said, does not rejoice in iniquity or evil, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what love is does not rejoice in sin. It cannot support homosexuality. Okay? It rejoices in the truth, even if that truth hurts, even if that truth isn't popular. In last verse here, in verse 25 of Hebrews says, not forsaking the assembling. That word in the Greek, episynagogon, or in some, like the root, episynagogue. And it basically is where they get the word synagogue from. And it basically is saying that we are not to forsake the fellowshipping with one another, just what we're doing now. Okay, it doesn't necessarily mean church, but I know a lot of people who have kind of abandoned church because they're fed up with what's going on in modern-day churches. I don't blame them. But the answer is not to not do anything. The Bible tells us that that's a dangerous thing. We need one another. I'm a hermit by nature. God's kind of created me that way. But I need you guys. I need fellowship. As much as I don't think I do at times, I do. 
because that's how God has created us, and he warns us, don't forsake the fellowshipping with one another, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. F.F. F. Bruce, uh, in his commentary on the Epistle to the Hebrews, said this, there's no evidence elsewhere for the use of episynagogue in a different sense from synagogue or meeting. Our author may simply be urging his readers not to give up attending the general meeting of the church. So it's very important not to just stay home by yourself. Not to keep watching church online. I'll tell you, I've said it before, but I do these Zoom Bible studies, you know, on Wednesdays. It's not the same. Doesn't. I've yet to feel the Holy Spirit really speaking through me as I do the presentation. I, I don't know what it is. And every speaker I know says the same thing. That's what Hebrews is saying. Draw near to God, love one another, and hey, don't forget... Don't stop fellowshipping. You need it. And as soon as you think that you don't, the devil's going to take you out. In another way, too, in Ephesians, when it talks about the body of Christ, we are all one body with many members, and we need each other. One can't say to the other that I don't need you. And I was just telling Tosh and Greg earlier that, you know, I just I'm so thankful for they They've got servant hearts. I mean... Everywhere I'm going, and there are others who have servant hearts here. A lot of you guys have servant hearts, but I was talking with them earlier. And just how grateful I am for that, because I'm an idiot. Like, I don't think of the details, the things. I think about teaching. And people show up and say, oh, we don't have water. We don't have coffee. I didn't get the eye. I don't think about those things. I'm too stupid. But they have servant hearts, and they see those things. Well, we all walk around with different gifts, and if we all have the gift of teaching, what a terrible Bible study this would be. But thank <laughs> the Lord that somebody does have the gift of, you know, service, and someone has the gift of making really good food, and somebody and else is music. The you know, kids. Logan and Josh, and thank goodness yeah, for that. Yeah, and we that. need that. That's what makes the body of Christ work: is all of those different gifts and talents, because. I don't, I have a very narrow window of talent. And I'm thankful that God brings people around me to let me function. I am very grateful for the body that's here. And uh, I know I, I have just so enjoyed this last week. I'm exhausted. Uh, it has been a long week, but what a blessing. And uh, I hope you guys were blessed by it too. And um, Look forward to well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we. It makes me think of that. Just what a blessing it is to have each and every one of you, uh, as part of the body here, and uh, grateful. So we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us and to the body. We just pray that you would help us to function well together, that we would be forgiving, that we would be loving, that we would hold one another accountable, 
that we would draw near to you. Lord, examine our lives, reveal in us any dross that needs to be removed, any idols that need to be crushed and cast out of our lives. And may you just uh, continue to reveal yourself to us in a deeper and deeper way. Father, when the devil tries to lie to us and accuse us, may we remember your promises. May we remember the truth and that we would give you glory and honor and praise and that understanding what you have done for us fully would cause us to boldly enter that most holy place, to grab on to that altar, your presence, your throne, and know that we are accepted, that you have extended the scepter to us through your son Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for sparing us. In Yeshua's name, amen.